With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, Fall of a Titan fans. If you're looking for more sports meets true crime stories, we've got something we think you might like. My name is John Gonzalez, host of Sports Illustrated Weekly. On our podcast, we go deep into the most fascinating stories in sports like this one we're about to play. We'll be dropping some of our favorite true crime stories in this feed coming up. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to Sports Illustrated Weekly, available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll also put a link in the description of this episode. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy this story. A quick heads up that this story features foul language, gun violence, and murder. The year was 1986. Manchester United had a new manager. Here he is on the first day of his new gig, telling the BBC about the awkwardness of meeting the players after former manager Ron Atkinson was ousted. They'll do all right. Once we get a relationship, I'm sure we'll do very well. Alex Ferguson didn't know it, but very well was a vast understatement. He was about to usher in a new era for the team, an era that would redefine English soccer. Manchester United are the champions of the Premier League. I really like Beckham too. Of course you do. No one can cross a ball or bend it like that. And it's a goal from Paul's goals. They've won it, Manchester United. Wonderful save by Schmeichel. Run here by Ryan Giggs. Oh, what a goal! Oh, goodness me! Rio Ferdinand! Here's Rooney! Oh, my goodness me! A hat-trick for Cristiano Ronaldo! In the mid-80s, Manchester United was on the precipice of greatness. But just across the river from the Grand Stadium, Old Trafford, a gritty, rough-and-tumble area of Manchester called Salford, was giving rise to an almost mythical criminal his name was Paul Massey. His story is one of hubris and deceit. In the shadow of one of the greatest soccer teams ever, the legend of Paul Massey can be told through these three things. Soccer hooligan firms, the drug trade, and the rave music scene. 
also, you can't tell the story of Paul Massey without telling the story of, of Manchester, and specifically the story of Salford. That's writer Reed Forgrave, who reported this story for an SI Daily cover. Manchester, it was really the first industrial town. The Industrial Revolution in the 1700s comes about, and it becomes this textile capital. And it gets pretty rough and tumble right away. What Chicago is to New York is what Manchester is to London. Very much the second city, very much the the more hard scrabble city, very much like a city with a chip on its shoulder. And within Manchester is this community of Salford. And what made Salford so gritty, so tough, a place where the gangster was respected, was because it was a dock town. Salford was the, the, the terminus of the Manchester Ship Canal. It's the third biggest port in, in all of England, which is crazy because it's inland. It's 35 miles inland, but they built this canal in the late 1800s to import and export all these goods that are being manufactured in Manchester. Paul Massey is a child of this area. He's born in the early 1960s, and Salford was still rolling as a dock city. But by the 1980s, when Paul Massey is supposed to be entering his prime, the docks close. Unemployment at one time among young men in Salford was close to 90%. And you know, anywhere in the world, when you get unemployment like that, people turn to bad things. That's what Paul Massey did. This is a guy who... Look, he had a rough upbringing. He was kind of a guy who was always getting in trouble, always out on the streets. So he gets sent off to reform school and ends up just really having a life of sort of low-level crime. But then by his 20s, this soccer hooligan stuff that he got involved with, with Manchester United, you know, most famous soccer team probably in the world. And he was a member of their Red Army, one of their hooligan firms. All right, so hooligan firms, also called ultras, they're more than just a group of fans, right? It's like a step below organized crime, but they're still pretty organized. Guys who just get out, get drunk, get in fights. Paul Massey uses those connections to really find a footing in the gang world. You know, there was small-time stuff, credit card scams, gasoline scams where would steal gasoline and sell it. He's doing jail time for this sort of stuff. Uh, And slowly that ends up building into something much bigger. And this is sort of how Paul Massey's greatness comes together. He's sort of at the nexus of soccer hooligan firms, of the drug trade. And most interestingly, and to me, you know, as an outsider to this, most surprisingly, the rave music scene. Paul Massey is at the nexus of these in the late 80s and early 90s. And that that's where he really makes his name, pulling in millions of dollars a year, whose security firm at one point had, had 120 employees. That is when, in the 1990s, when these hooligan firms come together with, with drug importation and rave music, that's where Paul Massey goes from a tough guy to Mr. Big. Manchester became the sort of nexus, not just for England, but also for Europe to be this destination for drug culture and ecstasy. And at one point, Manchester becomes known as Madchester because it's this drug-fueled club scene. And one of the clubs was the Hacienda. Explain to everybody how Paul Massey factored in there. He had been a pretty active hooligan member in the late 70s, early 80s. This is when hooliganism in England was 
you know, it, it was enough of a big deal that Margaret Thatcher convened a quote unquote war cabinet to address hooliganism. This was a big deal. Manchester United got banned from matches on the European mainland for a short period because its fans were so crazy. So Paul Massey comes from that world. And then in the mid 80s, the band New Order, who's the band that came out of Joy Division, they were right at the forefront of rave music. They owned this club called the Hacienda. And this is when Manchester was at its roughest spot in the mid 1980s. But then New Order goes to Ibiza, the island off of Spain, to record an album. And that's when they discover, that's the very beginnings of rave music. And New Order brings that back to England, brings that back to the Hacienda. And the Hacienda transforms into the hottest club, maybe in all of Europe. At this point, it's the mid to late 80s when the Hacienda really starts picking up. Manchester is also a university town. There's 100,000 university students there. And it, it becomes the place to be for young, cool, hot people in Manchester. And for Manchester, this city with a chip on its shoulder to suddenly become cool, not just cool for the north of England, but cool for all of England, for all of Europe. Uh, that's something that the city very much took pride in. And I think we all probably by this point know what goes with rave music. Ecstasy. So in this weird way, the business model for this club doesn't work that well for the people who own it. Not for Peter Hook, not for the guys from New Order, because people are taking pills that they buy at the front door, and they're drinking water, they're not drinking alcohol, and they're just raving all night long. But guess who figured out how to leverage selling the pills to all these ravers? It was Paul Massey. So he figures out if he controls the doors to these clubs, he can control the entire drug trade for all of Manchester and for all of this club scene. Paul Massey's greatest skill was that he could turn out a crowd. That goes back to his hooligan days. He, he just had this natural charisma to him. He wasn't the biggest guy. He wasn't the best looking guy, but he was someone who never backed down from a fight and someone who just had a respect with so many people. So if Paul Massey said, we're going to go to this club on a Saturday night, we're going to get 100 people, we're going to get 200 people, these ex-hooligans, and we're going to go to the security staff in the front, and we're going to basically occupy this club until the owners relent and say, okay, you're our new security staff. And then Paul Massey gets to sell all these ecstasy tabs at a huge markup and make millions upon millions of dollars doing this over the years. So Paul Massey figures this all out. He creates this criminal enterprise with these other hooligans that he was associated with. He's quite literally living the high life. And as we all know, these things generally tend to run their course eventually. It does for Paul Massey. 1998 rolls around and he gets arrested. What happens to him and why is he sentenced to 14 years in prison? You know, this is a story of, I think, great hubris. Paul Massey was on top of the world in Salford and in Manchester. Paul Massey, according to authorities, stabbed a guy, stabbed a guy in the groin. Uh, the guy almost died. He's put on trial and he's sentenced to 14 years for uh, attempted murder. Now, this was when Paul was at the top of his world. But it's not like this is a guy who is afraid of prison. If anything, that's a recruiting ground for him. 
if you get the sense of like the godfather aspect of Paul Massey, he had so many friends who were in prison that once he got out, he'd send Christmas cards to them. And he'd include 50 pounds that they could uh, spend at the prison commissary. Paul Massey, when he's in prison, he's still connected. And he assumes when he comes back out that he's going to kind of pick right up where he went off. He gets out of prison and he says he's a changed man, but really it's more about even though he had these connections while he was inside and he meets new people in the criminal underworld, when he gets out, Manchester has sort of changed a little bit. There are new gangs. There's a new gang called the A-Team and another new gang called the Anti-A-Team, which is not very creative, but still no joke. So Massey doesn't quite have the same power and influence he did when he went inside, right? Paul Massey gets out of prison. He, he proclaims to be a, a new man. I think if you talk to law enforcement authorities out there, they would look at that claim very skeptically. But he did end up running for mayor of Salford. I was passionate for Salford because I was born and bred here. I want to help the elderly, I want to help the youth, and I want to try and reduce crime, and I want to try and help to reduce the problem with drugs in Salford as well. It may be a little hard to understand what he's saying there. Somewhat ironically, it's, I got a passion for Salford because I was born and bred here. I want to help the elderly, I want to help the youth, and I want to try to reduce crime and also try to reduce the problem of drugs in Salford as well. He restarts his security firm, PMS Security, and he says, you know, this time we're above board. However, he's running for mayor and the police arrest him for all sorts of fraud allegations for PMS Security, which sort of tanks his candidacy. I think he finished like, seven out of 12. But yeah, in a way, this world had kind of moved on. However, Paul Massey still commanded respect in this world. He ends up becoming sort of like the advisor to this this gang called the A-Team, specifically a young man named Stephen Britton. He's brought in to broker peace between gangs when there are gang wars. This is not a place in Salford, especially among these people who, who grew up in this gang world, where they snitch. They refer to it as grasses. We say, you know, snitches go in ditches, right? But they very much live by the code. And this is something that's really important to understand about Paul Massey and his world. Police aren't the ones who are called in to sort of mediate these gang wars. It was Paul Massey. So that also means that he can find himself stuck in some pretty hairy situations. Yeah, and one of the hairiest read, it goes down on the night of July 26, 2015, in the shadow of Old Trafford Stadium. Something really dark happens. Yeah, something incredibly dark. He's driving home. He'd just gotten back from a vacation with his partner of almost 30 years, Louise Lydiot. He ends up going to a bookie, and then before he gets home, about a half mile from his house, there's a place called Bargain Booze. And he got a bottle of Bacardi, two liters of Coke. And he drives home, just have a quiet night with his wife. And as he's getting home, about 17 seconds behind him, there's a stranger who's following him. He gets home and pulls up his BMW 5 Series to the gate outside his really nice red brick home that you know his decades as this sort of gang leader had used all his, uh, his money to purchase. And just as he gets out of his car, a man pulls up on a bicycle. 
He's wearing military gear and he has what prosecutors believe is an Uzi. And this dude just starts firing at Paul Massey. This rain of bullets, 18 bullets, rained down on him. Uh, one of them uh, hit his left shin. Another one hit three fingers in his right hand, just tore one finger all the way off. He sort of escapes this first barrage, hides behind some trash bins, calls 999. Emergency service. He, he's yelling, I'm shot, I've been shot, hurry up. And the operator is trying to figure out where he is. He tells him his address, and he's saying, hurry up, hurry up, he shot at me. And then his phone cuts out. And what happened right then was a bullet tore through Paul Massey's fifth rib on the left side of his body, passed right through his chest, hit his heart and his lungs, and it lodged in his back. The bicyclist jumps on his bicycle, bikes away through a, through a cemetery in a church parish. This was not something Paul Massey was particularly surprised of. He, he knew that he was you know, a man who had been hunted. He had told a documentary crew from the BBC. It's meant to happen, it's meant to happen, and that's the end of it. I know the stakes. And immediately, word starts to get around. This wasn't just some dude who got nicked in a gang killing. This was Mr. Big, a guy who was renowned not just in Manchester, but all over England. And that night, people first show up at the scene. His son, one of his sons, comes to the scene. And they end up gathering at a pub just down the street called the Robin Hood Pub. It starts raining. And they basically had more or less a wake for him immediately. The pub closes and they end up going out in the rain after midnight in the parking lot of the pub, just remembering this man that was certainly a dangerous man, but was absolutely revered and feared in this world of, uh, of Salford. Eventually, two men emerge as possible suspects in the murder of Massey and also one of his associates, John Kinsella. So tell us a little bit about who the suspects were and how the investigation unfolds. For, for three years, there's nothing. Uh, you get the sense that everyone on the streets knows what happened. But for three years, this was an unsolved murder. But then John Kinsella, one of Paul Massey's lieutenants, an enforcer, a guy who was a really talented martial artist, also happened to be the man who was accused of throwing acid in someone's face at Paul Massey's funeral. <laughs> really classy guy. And guess what happens? A man on a bicycle, he pulls up, he fires shots at John Kinsella, kills John Kinsella point blank, shoots him in the back. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to say, hey, Maybe these two things are related. Maybe this gang war between the A-team and the anti-A-team, this gang war that Paul Massey had mediated, this gang war that Paul Massey had taken one side on, that this led to Paul Massey's murder, and this also leads to John Kinsella's murder. But this time, the assassin, who we'd all think would probably be the same assassin from three years ago, this time he didn't cover his tracks as well. There was CCTV security footage. They captured a man on a bicycle with his face covered, pedaling toward John Kinsella's home at 5 a.m. Enough suspicion 
that authorities thought they could arrest this man. Mark Fellows gets arrested and he did make a key mistake that police investigators quickly find out. And this is a really interesting part of your story, Reed, because I think in TV and in the movies, there are all these dramatic, sensational ways that investigators crack the case, but that actually happened here. Mark Fellows, he didn't really look like a gangster. He looked either like an accountant or like a competitive jogger, which guess what? He was. He was a talented runner, and when he would run, he would track his runs with a Garmin Forerunner 10 GPS watch. And if you are a would-be assassin, uh, you don't bring your cell phone with you. You don't want to be tracked. You want to really be sure that there are no ways that police can figure out where you were. You certainly don't want to wear a Garmin Forerunner 10 GPS watch. Uh, now, Mark Fellows did not wear this watch when he assassinated Paul Massey. He did not wear it when he assassinated John Kinsella. But when police searched his home, had probable cause to search his home, they find this watch a few weeks before Paul Massey had been killed back in 2015. They find what they believe was a reconnaissance mission that Mark Fellows had gone on. It traces him going from his house and it goes to Paul Massey's house. It goes to the cemetery at the parish church of St. Anne across the street. It gets turned off for about eight minutes and then it gets turned back on and goes back. Why would this man travel 15 miles on a bike to go right across the street from Paul Massey's house just weeks before Paul Massey would be murdered? That was really one of those caught red-handed type moments. Yeah, so what happens then with Fellows? Because Massey and Kinsella, the trial for their murders uh, is sort of combined and the prosecution lays out its case. What ends up happening with the verdict? Their murders are combined and also the, the defendants are combined. Remember earlier I told you when Paul Massey was driving to the liquor store the, the day that he got murdered, that there was someone 17 seconds behind him in a car. Well, there was a spotter in this. His name was Stephen Boyle. And Stephen Boyle and Mark Fellows were both arrested in connection with these two murders. And Stephen Boyle, what he said to investigators right when he got arrested, he did the most unsalford thing possible. He opened his mouth. What he said to police, he said, I haven't murdered anybody, but I probably know more things about it than I should. And when he goes on trial, Mark Fellows doesn't cop to anything. But Stephen Boyle does. He breaks the code. He says on the stand that he thought this was just a drug deal. And he basically threw his fellow gang member under the bus after both of these men were found guilty of homicide. Mark Fellows was given a double life sentence, which is incredibly rare in England. No chance of parole. The judge said to him after he gave him the sentence. He said, I have never had to deal with a contract killer of your kind before. And Mark Fellows kind of makes the hair on your neck stand up a little bit. When the sentences were being read, uh, he smirked. And then guards were leading him out of the courtroom. And he supposedly turned to Boyle, uh, the guy who broke the spotter, his old friend, the guy who broke the code and threw him under the bus. He made a throat slashing gesture at him. And he said to him, 
It's your fucking fault, you fucking grass. If it weren't for two things, if it weren't for this Garmin watch, and if it weren't for this guy who who broke the code, who spoke to police, who testified in court, uh, I believe, and I know the prosecutor believes, there would not have been enough evidence to put him in jail. What's so interesting about this story, Paul Massey and Mark Fellows, they were they were enemies. They were on opposite sides of this blood feud between these two gangs. But in this weird way, because Mark Fellows, even though he killed Paul Massey, he followed the code. He was a true Salford lad, as they would call them. In a weird way, I feel like Paul Massey would respect that. Kelly Massey, his, his, his daughter, would vehemently disagree with it, thinks that he's a, a rat and a coward and just an awful human being. I know Louise, his, his partner, would disagree as well. But in that world, the worst thing you can do, Paul Massey said at one point in this BBC documentary, you know, if he ever got caught by the cops, he said, I'd do my jail. But the last thing that he would do is grass on someone. He said, I'd rather hang myself first. I think the overlap here is important because you you mentioned Massey's funeral. All these people turn out. A lot of people wearing Manchester United gear. Paul Massey is buried in Manchester United gear. And so there's this tribalism for football and soccer hooliganism, but there's also a tribalism to the criminal underworld, right? And isn't that the intersection really of the story, that it's this tribalism that got Massey into the life and that same tribalism that ended up being his undoing. We talk about tribalism if you're a Tottenham Hotspur fan, if you're a Manchester United fan. You know, you wear the jersey, you're excited, you're a big fan. The tribalism with hooligan firms goes so much deeper. And I think that's very much what happened on the streets of Salford with these gang wars that went on for decades. I, I think you're dead on right when you talk about the tribalism. People don't just want to be make money. They want to be identified with something, as part of something. And same with hooligans, same with gangs. I, I think it's all just how we, we as humans just want to be part of something bigger, even if it's something that will lead to our demise. It's such a sensational, over-the-top story that it's almost too much to be believed, but it actually did happen. A remarkable bit of reporting and writing by you. You can read his story. I encourage everybody to do so on SI.com. We will link to it in our show notes. Read Forgrave. Thank you. You're the man. Appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening. And a reminder to please rate and review the show. It helps people find us. Sports Illustrated Weekly is a production of Sports Illustrated and iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. And for more of Sports Illustrated's best stories and podcasts, visit SI.com. This episode of Sports Illustrated Weekly was produced by Jordan Rizzieri, Jessica Yarmoski, and Isaac Lee, who is also our sound engineer. Our senior producers are Dan Bloom and Harry Swartout. Our executive producers are Scott Brody and me, John Gonzalez. Our theme song is by Nolan Schneider. And if you've stuck around this long, we leave you with this.
one of the one of the more thrilling moments of my life. Like we, we we get a little bit like jaded when you're interviewing athletes. It's like okay, I'm go you know a- ask a few questions of LeBron James. But interviewing rock stars is a whole different beast. I got to interview Peter Hook from New Order for this story. He was just the coolest dude on earth. And he was telling me I live in Minneapolis, and he was telling me about playing at the local club that I sometimes go to. And I'm like, oh man. So I'm supposed to next time Peter Hook and his, his new band is Peter Hook and the Light. Next time they come to Minneapolis, I'm supposed to grab a beer with him. Fingers crossed on that. 